Open up to Matthew chapter 12. Speaking of a group of people that tried to figure everything out. I've called this sermon the worst decision ever. That's a pretty bold claim. I hope to back it up. And I want us to think about maybe some bad decisions we've made in our own lives. Don't share them out loud. It would get awkward. I'll share one. I think I've probably shared this before. A bad decision that I look back on and I just think, what was I thinking? I was, I don't know, maybe 10. And we were traveling as a family. I I distinctly remember we were coming through Fort Wayne, Indiana. We lived in Valparaiso, Indiana. So Fort Wayne's kind of on the east. Valparaiso's kind of on the west. So we were going from east to west. And it was coming up on Christmas time. It might have been around Thanksgiving. And we stopped at a mall in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I saw a game that I wanted. Computer game. I know, I was a total nerd. Back then, of course. I, it was a wrestling game. Professional wrestling. Not like real wrestling. It was a professional wrestling. I was a total nerd. Okay. I wanted this game. And so I told my parents, like, man, it'd be so great to get this. Well, Christmas is coming. And I'm like, we're here. We're not going to come back through here. Now's the time to get, well, Christmas is coming. Oh, come on. So we get home. Days and weeks go by. And my parents had this closet in their room. It was kind of, it wasn't their clothes closet. It was kind of a hall closet. It was like, you know, I think they kept blankets or something in there. And I remember one day I was walking by it and there was a lock on the door. And I thought, that's interesting. It was one of, you know, the doorknob that you push the button in. I just thought that that's never been there before. That they don't lock. There's no lock on that door. My dad had swapped the doorknob. He had taken the doorknob off of something else and put this doorknob on so he could lock that closet. And I thought, hmm, why would he do that? And the light bulb goes off. Christmas presents are in the closet. So I did what any good child would do. I went and got a screwdriver and a hammer. And I pulled the hinges off turns out that doesn't work. You can't, if the door's locked, it doesn't matter. You can pull the hinges. You can't open it. I found out the hard way. So then I got a wire, put the hinges back on, reached around the latch and pulled and it popped right open. To be fair, my dad taught me that trick. So it's his fault. <laughs> Just saying. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it? I found that computer game and I very carefully cut open the packaging And I took it into my computer and I installed it. And guess what? It didn't work. I don't know what was wrong with it, if it was corrupted or it just wouldn't run on my computer or what, but it wouldn't work. Now, imagine my situation. What do I do? If I told them now, they could possibly go get a replacement By the time Christmas came around, it would be too late. It'd be like 30 days past. Yeah, you see the ethical dilemma here. (laughs) But if I told them now, I was in big, big trouble. So I did what any good 10-year-old kid would do. I packaged it back up very carefully, put it back in the closet, and locked the door. 
and I waited until Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, I tried my hardest to look excited about this gift that I was about to open that I knew was completely worthless. And I never, ever told my parents about that. I know, it's, yeah, mom, if you're watching, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm pretty sure they know that I did it by now, and I'm pretty sure they have much worse stories that we won't talk about. This was a bad decision on so many levels. It was like a bad decision after bad decision. And I don't mean to infer this was the worst thing I ever did. I, I wish it was. But you know what? I know that that bad decision, like every bad decision I've ever made, like every sinful decision I've ever made, has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And I am saved from those sins. And I am forgiven of those sins. I know that because of the truth of Scripture. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. We're going to look at another bad decision in Scripture. And again, I've called it the worst decision ever. You might know it by another name. It's known as the unforgivable sin. That is also a very heavy term. The unforgivable sin is, I believe, the worst decision that has ever been made. Now, here's the hard thing. As we study this passage, I'm going to dig into what the passage says, where it's coming from, the context of the passage. I believe that the unforgivable sin is usually misrepresented and mistaught. I believe it's used as kind of the boogeyman when kids are growing up. Be careful. You don't want to commit the unforgivable sin. Then you'll be in real big trouble. I want to show you what I believe Jesus is saying. However, I need to freely admit, this is an area that godly Christians, scholarly Christians, biblical scholars debate and disagree over. So I'm going to show you what I believe scripture allows us to interpret this as, and I will give you my personal interpretation. But as we go through, I also want to make sure that this isn't just a scholarly study. I'm not here just to educate you. We're here to worship. So we need to look at how does this apply to us? How does it help us to understand who God is, who Christ is, and how we should respond? So let's look at this worst decision ever. If you haven't done so yet, open up to Matthew chapter 12. We are going to look at verses 22 through 50. We're going to spend a lot of time in the first part and go very quickly through the rest of it. So the setting. If you remember back uh, last week at the beginning of chapter 12, we, we had this growing strife, struggle between Jesus, the Messiah, and the Jewish leadership. It's been one thing after another. It's steadily been getting worse and worse. And so we pick it up in verse 22. And it says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, Let me just park there for a second. I I don't know that this is the religious leaders bringing someone as a test. It could have just been, hey, the crowd brings them. We don't really know. What's interesting here is that the miracle is not that big a deal in this passage. 
It's not the emphasis. That's not where Matthew wants us to focus. We know that this man was possessed by a demon, which was causing him, in this case, I don't think, I think we need to be careful not to say this is always the case, but in this case, this was causing him to be blind and mute. And Jesus heals him. And then verse 23, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? What are they saying? They're they're not just saying, hey, who's this guy's ancestor? What's his family tree? The son of David means Messiah. They have a question. Could this be the long-awaited Messiah? They're wondering. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard about this, They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. The Pharisees cannot allow the people to go down the path of believing that Jesus is the Messiah. They refuse not only to admit it, but to allow others to believe it. And so they come up with this, what turns out to be a horrible excuse and explanation. Beelzebul, as far as we understand, was known as kind of the prince of demons, but by the time of Jesus, it was also another way of referring to just the worst demons or even the devil himself. And so what the Pharisees are saying is that it's not the power of God at work in this guy, Jesus. It's the power of Satan. That's how he does what he does. That's why the demons obey him, because he's like their master anyway. And that's what's going on. So don't believe in him, because if you believe in him, you're just as bad as he is. Think about their pride and their arrogance that is leading them to turn people away from Jesus by saying that he is the devil. They cannot accept. They refuse to accept. And as a side application, as I was thinking about this, it it just kind of struck me. It is amazing the great lengths we will go to to justify our own sin. It is amazing. These teachers aren't just questioning. They are leading people astray. They had already determined that Jesus was not the Messiah because he was a threat to their ideas, to their authority, and to their control and their social status. They would not accept it. And because they've already decided they can't accept him, they now have to come up for it with an excuse or another purpose or another reason to explain away everything that Jesus does. And so they claim that he is working in the power of Satan. Now, Jesus defends himself here. And all of this is leading up to this proclamation about the unforgivable sin. So it all applies. So stick with me. Jesus forgives himself, or Jesus defends himself rather in verses 25 and 26. This is his first defense. He says, Jesus knew knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So his first defense is, guys, come on, think about this. If I'm working under the power of Satan, and Satan is driving out demons, that's like Satan fighting his own army, undermining his own authority and his own power. Why would he do that? I I could just see Jesus standing there going, guys, use your heads. Come on, that makes no sense. You're really reaching at this point for an excuse. 
So he says that doesn't even make sense. Then verse 27, he gives another defense. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. See, Jesus wasn't the only guy that drove out demons. The Pharisees and their students and their disciples did as well. So Jesus is going, come on, guys, let's think about this. If every demon, every demon that is driven out is driven, driven out by the power of Satan, you've just condemned your own disciples. You've just condemned your own people. See, people that want to justify their actions often are not concerned with making sure that they're doing everything right and being consistent. They're quite comfortable using a different standard to apply to other people. And Jesus comes to a conclusion, verse 28, but if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's kingdom has come. This is his conclusion here. God's kingdom has come. And yet, what are the Pharisees saying about it? It's not actually God's kingdom. It's Satan's kingdom. And then Jesus continues, verse 28, or actually 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions? Unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Jesus says, look, if the kingdom of God is going to come into the kingdom of this world and take over, and Satan is the king of this world, doesn't it make sense that I would have to come in and disarm him and fight against him? Again, he's saying, think about this. Use what you know to be true. Jesus has come to destroy the power of sin, to destroy the power of Satan, and to destroy Satan's influence in this world. And yet, they're willing to say, oh, that's just by the power of Satan that you are doing this. This is a scary thing that they are saying. Jesus goes on in verse 30. says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no middle ground here. Jesus doesn't leave open the possibility that some are kind of on the fence. He says, you are either trusting in me as the Messiah or you are against me. You know, according to Jesus in this passage, we need to really weigh some of our more contemporary ideas. You see, according to Jesus here, there is no basically good middle ground. There's no just good people. So, well, so-and-so, they're not really a Christian, but they're a good person. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. There's no middle ground. There's no such thing as basically a religious person. I hear that all the time. As a pastor, you know, comes up, be talking to somebody. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm a religious person. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, I, I pray. I go to church every once in a while. You know, I don't know that I get into all that Jesus stuff and the cross and the resurrection, but I'm a, I'm a religious person. I'm good with God. Jesus says otherwise. Jesus says you're either with me or you are against me. The truth about Jesus forces us to make a decision. 
It must. The gospel, properly preached, properly communicated, must force a decision. You know, it was one of my struggles as a youth pastor. I started uh, my last couple of years in youth ministry as a youth pastor at a rather large church. The church is about 800. My youth ministry that I came into was about 200 kids. They had a skate park out back. They had five Xboxes, big basketball court, fun and games, everything. And those 200 kids had come every single week for years. And I would venture to guess over half of them had no concept of what the gospel of Jesus Christ was. And that, I thought, was a failure of ministry. And unfortunately, what happened is as we dug into the word of God and and as we preached, as we taught, as we got into small groups and we discipled, guess what happened to that group of 200? It got smaller. And some of them got really offended. But that's what the gospel does. Because on the flip side, others of them said, I've never heard this before, and they came to know Jesus as their Savior. The gospel calls for a decision. And so we come to verses 31 and 32. This passage about the unforgivable sin. Let me read it for us. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That's serious. Jesus is saying there is the possibility of a particular type of sin that cannot be forgiven. Ever. What is this? Let's start at the beginning with what he says. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Let's start there. Because that's really the summary of the overwhelming testimony of Scripture, is that any sin and every sin that we could possibly commit can be and will be forgiven through salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the overwhelming testimony of everywhere else in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter fifteen, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul talking. The Apostle Paul. Catholic Church calls him Saint Paul. Amazing, wrote so much of the New Testament, but he looked at himself and he said, I'm the worst of sinners. The guy went around arresting and killing Christians before he became a Christian. And he looked at his own heart. Even after he became a Christian, he knew the wickedness that was there. But verse 16 says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then he starts the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Skipping down to verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ came to save sinners from their sins. That is the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. So what is going on in these two verses in Matthew? What is this particular sin that will not be forgiven? And Jesus calls it blasphemy against the Spirit. The NIV says, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. The NIV here is being both very helpful and very unhelpful at the exact same time. It's helpful because there are two words here in the English, slander and blasphemy, that in the Greek are one word. It's the same word. And I think the NIV is being helpful to help us to understand that that's what blasphemy means. At its base root, to blaspheme is to slander someone or something, to speak evil against something. I think we automatically jump to blasphemy as just the worst possible sin. But it actually had these layers. It simply meant to speak evil about someone else. And so the NIV is helping us to draw this out. However, by using one word in one place and the other word in the other, I'm afraid they may have caused more confusion. Jesus talks about slander, blasphemy, against the Holy Spirit. To speak evil about the Spirit of God. That's what he's specifically accusing these Pharisees of. They are not just speaking evil against him. They're not just looking at the man Jesus standing in front of them and going, well, we don't really like what you're doing. That was a big deal. Rejecting Jesus was a big deal. They're looking at the power at work in Jesus's miracles and they're saying, we think even that is evil. So what is the unforgivable sin? Let me give you two what I consider popular answers that I think we must reject. One popular answer is that the unforgivable sin is any really bad or persistent sin in our life. Be careful not to continue in that sin. It might become unforgivable. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And that is not the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. If Paul, even the worst of sinners, can be forgiven... If Peter, who denied Christ, can be forgiven, any sin can be forgiven, no matter how bad or persistent. Another popular belief is that the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, is a particular statement of unbelief in God. Some have even taken this so far as to say it's using the Lord's name in vain. That's not what this is. Too many times in scripture, we see those who have spoken against God become saved or get restored to right fellowship with God. And again, I think Peter is the best example of this. He is called upon to say, don't you know Jesus? I don't know the man. And he calls down curses. And yet he's not sentenced to eternal torment because of that and called unforgivable. He is restored. So what is it? What is the unforgivable sin? Because I'm guessing we all want to kind of avoid it. Let's look at some clues from the context. Jesus has just done a miracle. It's the first clue. 
And the purpose of miracles in Jesus' ministry, and specifically in the book of Matthew, are to prove that he is the Messiah. It's the whole point of the miracles. Prove that he is the Messiah. The people begin to wonder, could this be the Messiah? And the Pharisees say, no way. No way. In fact, in order to make their point, they say it's not the power of God, it's the power of Satan. They have witnessed the miraculous workings of the power of God at work. And instead of accepting and admitting that it's God, they say it is the devil. Scripture describes this world as being under the power of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we looked at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so this is a picture in Scripture of salvation. That Christ, in the power of God, enters into our world and saves us who are enslaved to this world and the power of sin and the power of Satan. He defeats Satan and calls us out of this world and into his kingdom. And ultimately, his kingdom will conquer the power of this world. Jesus had come from God to save the world from the power of Satan. And look at what the Pharisees are doing. Turning that on its head. And they're saying it's just Satan at work. And so let me give you my understanding of the forgivable or the unforgivable sin. This is based on my study, and it is not just my personal belief. This is many respectful theologians and Bible scholars. My understanding is that the unforgivable sin was a sin that could only be committed by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That's it. They watched the miracles of Jesus. They saw it with their own eyes. And they proclaimed, this is not the power of God. It is the power of Satan. And in so doing, not only did they refuse to believe in salvation, they were leading others to do the same. They witnessed the miracles of Jesus, but judged that he was from the devil. Personally, based on everything else in Scripture, I personally do not believe anybody else can commit this sin. Again, the overwhelming testimony of Scripture when applied to anybody else's sin, no matter how bad it is, is that we can be forgiven. And yet here, in this specific instance, Jesus says, this is not forgivable. That being said, I want to be careful not just to dismiss it. Oh, don't worry about it. In fact, let me be careful to say, if you are at all concerned about committing the unforgivable sin, guess what? I guarantee you haven't, because you wouldn't care. They didn't care. They didn't fall down on their knees. Oh, woe is me. We're we're such big trouble. No, they just kept wanting to kill him. That's how hard their hearts were. But what can we learn? Sin is serious. And we may not be in the exact same place as the Pharisees, but we are really good at excusing our own sin. And we're really blind to the effects of those excuses. We also need to understand that denying Christ is serious. 
To say that he is not the way of salvation is to reject the only thing that can truly save. Now, I believe that in this lifetime, we can go back. God changes us from the inside out, and we can say, I repent, I was wrong, and I believe in Jesus again. The Pharisees, this group, never did, as far as I can tell. This horrible decision, this horrible sin of the Pharisees had consequences in their life. And I do think we can learn from those consequences. Jesus goes on now to talk about the rotten fruit in their life. We're going to go through this very quickly, I promise. Verses 33 through 37, he says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. They are looking at Jesus and bringing up out of their own sin the overflow of their mouth and these judgments. And Jesus is warning everybody around them, why are you listening to them? They have nothing good to say. What is at work in their own hearts is rotten and evil. Verse 38, he says, but some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That's rich. You just saw one. Now, it's possible this actually happened some other time, and Matthew's putting it together because he sees the connection here. But they saw many miracles from Jesus, lots and lots of miracles. And they still have the audacity to say, we want to see a sign from you. This is not a seeker. Please understand that. Jesus, we really want to believe. And if we could see a miracle, we would believe. This is someone saying, I don't believe in who you are. You have to prove it even when he's already proven it over and over and over again, and they refuse to accept it. So Jesus gives them this answer. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's pointing to his resurrection. He says, you want a sign? I'm going to give you a good one. I'm going to be dead, and then I'll come back to life. And let's see if you believe in me then. And of course, the answer is they wouldn't. They wouldn't. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Be careful. Be careful in thinking that your faith has to rest on miracles. Be careful in thinking if God would just show up and do one more miracle, then you would trust in him. The authority of Scripture says that's probably not true. We will come up with excuses for why we still don't believe. And in 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. He says, you think the story of Jonah is so amazing and it is, but I am greater 
And this is part of a string of greater thans in Matthew. In chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. Chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus is greater than the temple. Chapter 12, verse 41, he's greater than Jonah. And the pattern continues. Verse 42 says, The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Wednesday night men's group is studying Proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon. People came from all over because they heard about this incredibly wise ruler in Israel and they just wanted to learn and listen. He said they got it and they came to listen. And what are the Pharisees doing? They're judging and rebuking and refusing to listen. He says a greater wisdom is here. You would think that they would listen. But then we look at our own hearts. You would think we would listen too. But we struggle. Verses 43 through 45, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. This is still Jesus explaining what's going on. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go out and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Some have taken this as kind of a uh, education on kind of spiritual or demonic possession. I think Jesus is just giving a parable here because he's using it as a picture of this generation. And the picture is somebody who has a demon driven out, but nothing else comes in and the demon just comes back with a whole bunch of other ones. That's the simplified version. And I think he's given a picture of what the Pharisees do. They have this list of rules. You want to be pure? You want to be holy? You want to be clean? Fix up your life. Get all of these things out of your life. Follow our religious laws. But Jesus is making the point, you can't put anything in to change the heart. Only God can do that. Legalistic righteousness is never enough to save. Unfortunately, legalistic righteousness is often enough to miss the grace of God. That's the thing about rotten fruit. It taints everything that it touches. And finally, we have this account of Jesus' mother and brothers Because the Pharisees weren't the only ones who struggled. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And the implication is they were trying to draw him away from these bold things that he was saying. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says that all who believe in him are his true family, accepted by him, brought into, adopted into this family that he loves. And I think this is such a great balance to this concept of unforgivable sin, is this picture of Jesus saying, come be a part of my family. Come on, follow me, trust in me. Have you ever made decisions you regret? Is there anything in your life that you look back on and go, man, I don't know if Jesus can forgive that. 
I want you to hear very clearly today the testimony of Scripture. Jesus can and will forgive. But I also want you to hear the testimony of Scripture, which is we have to come to Him and accept who He is and believe in Him and follow Him. I don't believe, personally, that we can commit this absolute worst decision ever, the unforgivable sin from which there's no coming back. But I do believe that we often make the lesser bad decision of failing to trust in Jesus. I think we make that one often. We fail to believe in his power, his wisdom, his authority, and some even fail to trust in his salvation. I pray that even in this passage that I know is hard, you would hear that invitation of Jesus to say, come, believe in me, be a part of my family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a tough passage. And godly brothers and sisters in Christ have debated its meaning over the centuries. Father, I don't claim to have the end-all, be-all answer. But I do pray that we could hold these different answers in tension with what the rest of your word says and be very careful not to overshadow the gospel of forgiveness and grace through your son Jesus as we try to explain these two verses. And Father, if there's anyone here that's struggling with their own hearts and saying or thinking, I can't be forgiven, may they hear the message of the gospel, that Jesus' death is enough. It is enough to pay for their sins. It is enough to call them into a relationship and to adopt them as your son and your daughter through your son, Jesus Christ. But Father, may we equally take sin seriously. May we understand that while it may not have the same effect that the Pharisee's sin had, it does have an effect on us and those around us. And so may we look at how we are following you and how we are trusting in you because those are often the same thing. And may we see Jesus. May we behold him for who he truly is and to be willing to trust him with our lives. In his name we pray, amen.